Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Brian talked a little bit about that he grew up in Massachusetts and went to school in Philadelphia, and that's where he had his business, uh, his computer business in Philadelphia. And that's where he got affiliated. I can't remember the guy's name, the boxer he, that he was affiliated with, and he invested some money in a record, the Double Dutch Dash or whatever it was. He talked about doing some stuff with the Philadelphia Stock Exchange, but that all blended in to him having a big computer company that he sold for, he never said an amount, but it was large dollars. And that's why he was involved in investing. I called his house about seven o'clock thinking he was home and uh, somebody answered the phone. And I didn't know, said, no, he's not here. And I take a message. I said, yeah, just tell him buddy call. And I hung up. I said, wow, his brother must be in town. I bet you that's his brother, man. I'll have to go over and meet him later. <laughs> well, that didn't work out. This is Wolves Among Us, Episode 6, American Tragedy. You can't ignore the collateral damage that is created by your criminal enterprise. I truly believe in my heart that he never meant to hurt or harm anyone in any way. I mean, it was just awful. And it was vengeful, period. People don't do that. He just remained, like, level. Like, how do you do that? So prison, people believe, is this horrible place. And it is if you want to let it be. But if you try to make the most out of it and do what you can to make it a decent place to live, you can get by. When Larry Lavin and his family went on the run, nobody knew where they had gone. Not Billy Motto, not his dental assistant Beth, or even his family members. Larry covered his tracks very carefully, leaving Chuck Reed and Sid Perry without any useful leads. The FBI was spinning its wheels, until finally, they were able to intercept a letter that Larry's wife had sent to her mother. The letter read, Dear Mom, Hi, Chris had a great birthday. We took him and his best friend to one of those pizza places like I used to go to with the video games and rides, and the bear brought out his birthday cake and sang him a song. He was thrilled. 
The letter included photos with some tree foliage in the background, which sparked a hunch in Chuck Reed that the Lavins were in Virginia. It was a bold and seemingly baseless claim, but Assistant U.S. Attorney Tina Gabrielli took him seriously. I think uh, Chuck had a photographic memory, and Chuck kind of had one of those steel trap minds where today we'd say it was like the link analysis program on a computer. I mean, he would see numbers and, and addresses, and he would go, wait, I remember there's a connection here. And five minutes later, he'd come back and show us and say, I knew it. And we all learned that when Chuck said, I know it, I mean, he really knows it. It's <laughs> just time after time. Chuck would just astound all of us with the things that he just knew. I mean, an incredible mind. Chuck's instinct was so strong that he felt the sudden need for an impromptu family vacation. And Chuck was so convinced that he was in Virginia that when he went with his family to Virginia Beach on vacation, he was joking with his family that, you know, we might run into Larry Lavin. And uh, his son is like, well, Dad, what are you going to do? <laughs> he says, I'll, I'll pick him up and throw him in the trunk of the car. But the quick trip to Virginia Beach did not validate Chuck Reed's hunch. He returned to Philadelphia and continued searching for real hard evidence with Sid Perry. While the intercepted letter offered no bombshell revelations, it did mention some specific details that interested the FBI. There was a mention that Larry and, and his wife had taken their son to a pizza place for his birthday, that a bear had brought a cake out. And Sid, that resonated with him. And he goes, that's Chuck E. Cheese. He says, I took my son to a place like that when he was little. Sid called the Chuck E. Cheese corporate office, asking if they have a bear character who delivers cakes to guests. They said no, but they knew of a place that did. Showbiz Pizza. It was a chain located mostly in the southeast, and its mascot was Billy Bob the animatronic bear. This is Carol Celine, author of Dr. Snow. So they got all the franchises that were in that area from Showbiz, and they wrote a letter asking the franchises, did you have a party for a three-year-old named Chris around this date? Most of the franchises wrote back, and they did not. It happened that the one where the party took place did not answer because they didn't keep records for more than a month, so they didn't know if they had ever had that birthday party. However, what it did tell them is what were the franchises in the area they were looking at. And they did know that when they started to narrow in, that wherever Larry had been, it would be in a place that had a showbiz franchise. So it ended up being a very valuable piece of evidence. After gleaning all they could from the letter's contents, Chuck and Sid received a lucky break. One of the cooperating witnesses in the Yuppie conspiracy case, who was out on bail, told the FBI that he was expecting a call from Larry. And sure enough, Larry called. But having read volumes on government surveillance techniques, Larry knew to call from a payphone, and he knew how long he could stay on the call without it being traced. It was at this exact moment that Larry's gift of gab became a curse. The FBI traced the call. It was coming from an 804 area code, which at the time encompassed a large part of southeastern Virginia. But there were only two towns in that area 
with a showbiz pizza, Lynchburg, and Virginia Beach. Chuck Reed was not only right about the state, he might have also been right about the city too. Chuck and Sid's investigation was finally heating up. They knew they were close, and in the spring of 1986, they were able to flip yet another key witness, Larry Levin's brother, Rusty. My brother Rusty's role in my business was somewhat minor. The fact that he's in New England, and I have several people in New England that we're doing things with, there's times where he might be involved in transporting or things being dropped off and people picking things up for him. He also would put money in a safe deposit box for me. At some point later on, the government talks with him and convinces him to cooperate. And at first he was really resistant and they convinced him that all his problems in life were due to me and uh, that he should cooperate. And so that started him on this uh, route of cooperating and setting up a call that they're gonna record when I would call him once a month. A lot of people wonder why someone would be so crazy to stay in contact with their family. It's not such an easy thing to do to cut yourself off with all your family members. You know, you drop out of a world, but believe me, you still want to know what's going on in that world. Things like trying to research in newspapers and whatnot only get you so far. I do remember opening the USA Today one day and seeing 86 co-defendants indicted in the Yuppie Kingpin case. But I would call him once a month at a series of 20 pay phones and I would say, we'll call you next, you know, such and such date, such and such time at phone D. And he eventually let the government listen to one of those phone calls. With the FBI listening in on the call, Larry asked the usual questions. How's the family? Who's being indicted? How are their cases going? Then, in passing, he mentioned that he was hanging out with a retired FBI agent. The key breakthrough was when Larry made a huge mistake and said that a retired FBI agent was a friend of his, that he used to go fishing with him. So Sid started writing letters to all of the retired agents, and Sid did something brilliant. The letter itself was very interesting, because not only did it enclose a photo of Larry, and not only did it talk about you know some of his biographical details and the details about the case and stuff, but Larry is so charming and had such a way with people that we were all concerned that, well, maybe the retired FBI agent was such a close friend, maybe he wouldn't turn him in. So Sid included the one fact that he knew no FBI agent, retired or not, could ignore. He included the evidence that we had developed that a contract hit was placed on Special Agent Chuck Reed's life. Your attention to this matter and any assistance you can provide in the apprehension of a major narcotics dealer is greatly appreciated. The letter from Sid was sent out to hundreds, if not thousands, of retired FBI agents on Monday, May 12, 1986. The flyer has Larry's picture, what he's guilty of, how he is a fugitive, just enough information. Please call us if you know this man. Pat O'Donnell goes out to get his mail, opens the mailbox, sees a letter with the FBI address on it, opens it, and there inside 
is his dear, dear friend, Brian O'Neill, a.k.a. Larry Lavin, the drug dealer. So a radiologist friend of mine had recently been fired and is pretty depressed. Pat says, hey, Larry, it'd be really nice if you could take this guy out. I know he's depressed and all that. So I call him up and we plan a fishing trip. And we go out and have the typical great day. I mean, we really knew where to fish. It wouldn't be unusual to, if there's four of us, we might get over 200 pounds of fish. You know, but the two of us did okay that day. So as I pull in and dock the boat, Pat O'Donnell yells, you know, something like, how was the fishing? And by instinct, I go over and pick up the biggest fish and go to lift it up. As I lift it up, two FBI agents jump in the boat and grab me from each side and say, are you Larry Lavin? And I, I couldn't help myself. I said, yes. I look around and there's speedboats coming from different directions. There's helicopter flying in. There's agents running all through this parking lot from the marina. So I realized that, you know, this is it. It's funny when something so incredible happens to you, time freezes, sort of like a car accident. I just remember turning and looking at Pat, and he's now comforting our friend, the radiologist, who's crying. And they're both kind of looking back at me, but yet it's kind of like this look of disbelief on their face. And next thing I know, I'm being tugged away, and uh, that was the last time I ever saw them. When the FBI arrested Larry, he had 56 different forms of false ID on him which he'd planned to move to a safety deposit box later that day. Up until the second Larry was captured, he didn't think anyone was even close to figuring out who he was. Then, after a great day on the water, the life of Brian O'Neill came to a screeching halt, and the life of Larry Lavin picked up where it left off. He had been betrayed by a former associate, his brother, and Billy Bob, the animatronic bear. And Larry wasn't doing himself any favors by hanging out with a retired FBI agent, but he genuinely believed it wouldn't turn out like this. I got along great with Pat O'Donnell. You got to realize we're both Irish. I thought foolishly that if something ever, God forbid, happened and that Pat had to turn me in, we're good enough friends that he would call and say, Larry, the jig's up. I got to turn you in, you know, get your stuff together as far as, you know, anything you got to do real quickly and we got to get this over with. I never realized that that's not the way an FBI agent would ever think. Once an FBI agent, always an FBI agent. Later on, Larry received some information that helped him make sense of the situation. One of my neighbors went to see him and was really pissed off that he had done this. And Pat told him, do you realize that he was going to kill an FBI agent or something? So. I think he fell for that and probably thought that I was this much more serious, dangerous criminal. So I can't really blame him, I guess, in the end. But I felt that way, though, when I first found out. I was pissed. I was just like, how could you, after you know all the moments we've shared together, how could you do this? In our interview with Tina Gabrielli, she stated that the FBI had obtained evidence from a cooperating defendant that Larry wanted to have Chuck Reed killed. Larry denies the allegation outright. 
Did you ever try to hire someone to kill Chuck Reed? No. What would that do? Can you imagine if someone kills an agent? I mean, the government would never stop until they found someone, you know? Yeah, I'm just not a violent person. What, what, what am I going to gain by killing? I never felt that Chuck Reed was the reason all this was happening to me. He was, you know, part of the investigation, not a likable character for me, but still, it wasn't because of him that I'm caught, is my real feeling. You know, it's, uh, it's my own mistakes that I made, and I'm the one that got into this business. So, I mean, killing him never even entered. I don't think anyone's mine. But see, typically, the government just loves to portray anyone as this horrendous, violent, you know, uncaring individual. Where really, you know, most people are just not like that. The allegation of Larry's attempt to kill Chuck Reed did not lead to any charges. In the superseding indictment filed after his capture, Larry was not charged with conspiracy to murder or any related charges. Larry was facing the same charges from two years ago, but this time around, his attorney, Tom Bergstrom, was fighting an even steeper uphill battle. I went down there, I flew down to Virginia Beach. Uh, I met him and they immediately released his wife because they arrested her too. Um, but they, they immediately let her go. And then I just talked to Larry and said, you know, they're going to bring you back to Philadelphia and I'll meet you there and uh, we'll do what we can do. When he got back to Philadelphia, we didn't see him for the first time in court. We saw him because he began doing what he should have done years before when Chuck Reed first approached him. He started to cooperate, but it was kind of too little and way too late. We didn't really need... Larry Lavin's cooperation. One month after his capture, Larry changed his plea to guilty. He was cooperating, but only by handing over his assets. He refused to give any information about any of his co-conspirators, several of whom were never caught and went on to live normal lives. His sentencing hearing was set for September 4th, 1986 almost exactly two years after his initial arrest. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking 
about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. On the day of the sentencing, Larry actually had two hearings, one for the drug charges and another for the tax charges. The hearing for the drug charges was presided over by Judge Lewis Pollack. The hearing's first witness was a psychologist named Dr. Albert Levitt, who had interviewed Larry for six and a half hours. Tom Bergstrom asked Dr. Levitt if he had gained any insight as to why Larry had committed the crimes he was pleading guilty to. Levitt said yes. He said that, quote, Dr. Lavin is yet another case of an American tragedy. Dr. Levitt was referring to a 1925 novel by Theodore Dreiser, in which the doomed protagonist commits murder in a desperate quest to attain wealth and status. The psychologist went on to chronicle Larry's upbringing, his family's financial struggles, saying, quote, He goes to very rich schools like Phillips Exeter, where the very rich go. He sees that the very rich, their toys, are drugs. He sees that it's condoned by the very rich. His activities are criminal under law, although they are condoned by a large segment of society. Levitt concluded by stating that he believes Larry is not a risk to become involved in further criminal activity. Later in the hearing, Larry's scuba instructor, Buddy Heller, was called to testify. He told a story about Larry taking an interest in Buddy's search for his biological parents. Buddy had hired a private investigator who was able to track them down. This investigator, yeah, it only took him a few weeks. He found my mother in California. And uh, everybody at the dive shop found out, and Larry got everybody together that I didn't know about. And uh, they took up a collection to get me, buy me a plane ticket to fly to California to meet my mother. You know, and that's something that, yeah, not everybody does, you know. And, uh, he just sort of went out of his way to try to hook me up, help me out so, you know, I could find out more about my life. Then they called up Larry's former dental assistant, Beth Graziani. Beth told the court that she thought Larry was, quote, a terrific person. I truly believe in my heart that he never meant to hurt or harm anyone in any way. So therefore, I felt that I should come forward and really kind of tell the judge and the court about the person that I knew, that he's not a villain and a hardened criminal. In his closing argument, Tom Bergstrom attributed Larry's crimes to greed, and he focused on the positive aspects of his life. He called his client a loving husband a loving father, and a friend. He has been a professional dentist, apparently without equal. He closed reciting a poem by A.E. Hausman. Now hollow fires burn out to black, and lights are fluttering low. Square your shoulders, lift your pack, and leave your friends and go. Oh, never fear, lads, naught's to dread. Look not left nor right, In all the endless road you tread, there's nothing but the night. Bergstrom then said, I want for Larry Lavin to not be faced with darkness. I ask that this court sentence him appropriately, so that someday 
he may return to a world that he can be a part of, honest and legitimate. Now, it was Tina Gabrielli's turn to make the closing argument on behalf of the government. She cited a report that was submitted by Dr. Levitt, in which the psychologist described Larry's drug dealer status as a small fish in a big pond. I responded that Dr. Lavin is the largest fish we've ever caught here in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. In 1981, the record showed, according to what I said, the organization purchased 250 kilograms of pure uncut cocaine. And based upon the available information, we believe we could easily show it distributed approximately 1,000 kilos of cocaine. That's a million grams. Once the cocaine is sold, it's usually cut at least one more time before it's redistributed on the streets. And in fact, Larry cut it a number of times depending on client preferences. Even if it was cut only once to a 50% purity level, which is still very high quality, that's two million grams of cocaine. An eighth of a gram is considered an individual dosage amount. That would be 16 million individual dosage amounts. That's enough cocaine to turn on every man, woman, and child based on last census figures in the following cities. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Wilmington, Delaware, New York City, Boston, Massachusetts, Baltimore, Maryland, Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Chicago, Illinois, Denver, Colorado, Phoenix, Arizona, and San Francisco, California. So the government submits we have not caught a small fish, but rather a kingfish. In response to Tom's argument that Larry wasn't violent, Tina said this, I'd like to comment on a statement that was made by counsel, that Dr. Lavin never killed anyone. We have no way of knowing that. We do know that cocaine can cause death. We do know that Lavin has distributed an alarming amount of it. Tina Gabrielli concluded her argument saying, Lavin is 31 years old. He's led an exceptional life, one full of excitement, power, thrills. Now, however, it's time for Lavin to pay that price. As for the specific price that Larry should have to pay, the prosecution recommended 30 years in prison. Tom Bergstrom asked that Larry serve no more than the mandatory minimum of 10 years. Everyone in the courtroom, including a large section of news media, turned their attention to Judge Pollack. Judge Pollack was an extremely thoughtful individual. He stated, should Dr. Lavin be treated more compassionately because he's somebody that we find it easier to identify with? When I state the question that way, of course, the answer forthcoming from you is no. The answer forthcoming from me is no. Is Dr. Lavin to be treated more harshly than others because he had all the advantages? Do we lean over backwards to be vindictive? I think we as a society don't do that. But we do have sound reason, do we not, to expect higher degrees of understanding of what one is doing to the extent that one has been well-educated and well-cared for by this society? Judge Pollack concluded that the government's recommended sentence of 30 years was too high and that Tom Bergstrom's request that Larry serve no more than the minimum mandatory of 10 years was too low. On the two less serious counts, Larry was sentenced to four and three years to be served consecutively. On the kingpin charge, he was given 15 years. In all, Larry was sentenced to 22 years in federal prison. But Larry's day wasn't over yet. 
He still had a second sentencing hearing in the afternoon for the tax charges. Far less serious than the drug charges, but a sentencing nonetheless. So now you go back to some type of holding cell, and they're going to arrange for the second sentencing, which is going to be in front of Judge Bechtel on the tax case. Larry didn't know anything about Judge Bechtel. He and Tom Bergstrom were far more concerned with Judge Pollack and the drug charges. They were confident that the sentence would not only be mild in comparison to the one already given, but that it would be served concurrent with the drug sentence, effectively adding no time in prison. And we go up there and the government's a little bit more prepared for this. And when the psychologist gets up and says Larry was a small fish in a big pond, they object and say that he was more like a shark in a fish tank or something like that. But when that is all done, Judge Bechtel starts his sentence in and he starts saying that it's because of people like me that our taxes are so high and no one reminds him more of Alfonso Capone than I do and no one he knows deserves full sanctions more than I do. And he starts giving me five years, five years, five years. And I remember as he's saying those, I feel like Tom's writing them down quicker than they're coming out of the judge's mouth. And I feel like reaching over and grabbing his pen. So he gave me four or five year sentences and he said these are all to be consecutive. So that meant that I had a 42 year sentence. My wife at the time is sitting in the first row right behind where the government's desk is. And uh, I share a look at her and realize, you know, how despaired she is that, you know, the reality's hitting us that, you know, this is it, you know, that you're going away and uh, you're not going to be together and it's going to be a very long time, in, in some ways a, a lifetime. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're being handcuffed and pulled away by the marshals. It's, you know, a terrible moment. It was awful. It was awful. Let me tell you something. If you go back to 1986 and you look at sentences for tax evasion in 1986, 84, 85, 86, you're going to see that the sentences ranged anywhere from six months to two years. Nobody went to jail for 20 years for a tax case. Nobody. There isn't a lawyer on this planet that would tell you that Judge Bechtel's sentence was anticipated. Not a lawyer. Zero. Because the history of tax evasion in 1986 was, as I just said, a two-year max, maybe three. End of story. He gave him five years consecutive. Under the sentencing guidelines, that sentence today could not have exceeded 63 months, period. I mean, it was just awful. And it was vengeful, period. The real tragedy of Larry's case is that he ran. And the real tragedy of Larry's case is the sentence that Judge Bechtel gave him. Those are tragedies. They should not have happened. So when I got that sentence, you can't help but think how much the running affected. But I got to tell you, I couldn't help but still think that that two years on the run was up to that point, the best two years of my life, getting to spend time with my family. And I really thought I was going to get about 20, 22 years when I went into that at the worst. 
And I really didn't believe I was going to get anything on the tax case. That was all the advice that I was being given. So looking back doesn't do you a whole lot of good at the time. I just have to deal with reality now and start moving forward. Larry's reality following his sentencing was harsh. He was handcuffed and taken to Chester County Jail, where he would receive his prison assignment. So there's probably 10 or 12 of us in a room. And they start telling you where you're going. And this guy's going to um, the camp at Lewisburg. This guy's going to the camp at Allenwood. And all of a sudden, they get to me and the guy says, what the hell did you do? What's up? I'm asking him. He says, "Uh, you're going to Leavenworth Penitentiary. (laughs) And I swear to God, everyone around me stepped a step back. It's like, who is this guy? Like you're some type of axe killer or something. So that was not a good sign. I will tell you, when I arrive at Leavenworth, you get off this bus and there's probably 20 or 30 officers with shotguns up at their shoulders, aimed at your head, yelling at you. I remember one guy looked to his left where there's some TV monitors. He immediately got smacked in the face with the back of a shotgun. They're very serious at Leavenworth. They're in your face screaming at you, hoping you're going to do something that can give them a chance to just beat the hell out of you. That's what that intake is like. Why I'm outside the prison and they're screaming and doing all this craziness, an ambulance pulls in and I find out later in the day that a guy has just been stabbed in the yard and uh, he didn't make it. He dies. Leavenworth is a really intense place. The short time I was there, there were 26 stabbings and three deaths, and that was just over a few months. So you realize you're in hell. You know, this is the best way to describe it. Up until this point, Larry had always found a way to build relationships and make friends. He could talk to anyone, make a connection. When he arrived at Phillips Exeter, he was an outsider and he bonded with kids over pranks and the occasional joint. Now he was an outsider once again. But instead of a New England prep school, he was at Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary. I quickly realized that there's different characters in prison. You have to learn to kind of stand on your own. You go to the dining hall and everyone's separating groups, whether you're black, Spanish, white, white supremacist, and it's hard those first few days to find your spot. And I consider myself as someone that's just going to be on his own. Within a week, a white supremacist comes to me and explains to me that a black guy is going to try to rob me tonight. And they're going to protect me. And he's got a pipe in his hand. and He wants me to take that. He thinks I should take the first move and go kill this guy. And I said, no, I'll handle it. He says, you don't understand. You can't handle this. You need our help with this. And I said, no, I'll handle it. If you believe this bullshit that people are telling you, you're going to fall for that. You're going to go take some risk like this and end up hurting someone and getting yourself hurt. As Larry navigated life in prison, those who brought him down were thriving. Kelly Reed remembers the impact it had on his father's career. I think this is a case that made careers. As an investigator, you could probably hang your hat on this one and do very little else and be considered to have a really successful career. There were countless people attached to the case who had their careers and promotions were all built on the Larry Lavin case. 
and the scope of it and the number of indictments that came through and the number of sentences that were put forth people that became you know huge in the law enforcement community who had gotten their start as prosecutors or investigators on the Larry Lavin case. The work that Chuck Reed and Sid Perry did investigating and capturing Larry Lavin became legendary in FBI circles. But on March 22, 1996, Chuck Reed's career was tragically cut short. It was an undercover meeting. I think it was a young guy that was kind of posturing as a big-time drug dealer who wasn't a drug dealer. And this suspect was going to just decide to rob my dad, thinking he had cash on him as a drug purchaser. And ultimately, things got uncomfortable. My father identified himself as an FBI agent. It turned out that that guy had a gun trained on my father the entire time. My dad got shot in the chest and he shot the suspect in the head after he was shot. So I guess that's kind of heroic if you think about it. So you always hear the term when law enforcement gave their life. Well, he definitely did give his life, but he would not have chosen to do that. My mom's been a widow since her early 40s. That's not supposed to happen. He's in the National Law Enforcement Memorial But his legacy to me will be more as my dad than as, you know, an FBI agent, for sure. They named a park in Harleysville after my father because he was a baseball coach there, Charles Reed Park. You can't ignore the collateral damage that is created by your criminal enterprise whether it's drug users, drug addicts, people out there fighting the drugs, it's not a victimless crime. And hopefully some of the things I said today could remind people of that. At the time of Chuck Reed's death, Larry was serving the 10th year of his 42-year sentence. He had been transferred from Leavenworth to a less dangerous prison in Oxford, Wisconsin. My wife would come a lot at first, maybe once a month and once a quarter, all the way down to once a year, maybe even less than that towards the end. Probably the worst visit I ever had was once when my family's leaving, my daughter's arm gets caught in the door that they use to separate the visiting room from the rest of the prison. And as I'm leaving, I hear this big scream and luckily she ended up being okay, but you know, it's just horrible when things like that could happen. And all I could think is here she's come to visit me and, and gets hurt. There's times in prison that the people that are keeping you in prison, I think they don't always realize the mental stress they're putting you under. You know, but when I was in jail, my nickname was Smiley. I never felt like I had a bad day. I decided that, you know, I'm going to make the most of this, and that's what you have to do. I try to do that every day. So at one point, there's a problem in the gym. There's too many people at night. There's too many fights. People are getting hurt. What could you do that would lure people out of the gym to other events? And that's why I said, let's put on movies every night. We'll pay for this, whatever it takes, a satellite dish. So we put on two movies every night and, you know, on the weekends, three movies. We did all the sporting events. You got trophies once a year for the best tennis player, the best 
basketball player, on and on and on. And they allowed us to have a banquet once a year, which we paid for all the food. You could pick the menu and all that stuff. So prison, people believe, is this horrible place. And it is if you want to let it be. But if you try to make the most out of it and do what you can to make it a decent place to live, you can get by. Larry became a model prisoner. He attended every parole hearing, hoping they'd reward him for his good behavior. When I went to the uh, parole board, they were amazed that I had done that much time and never had a, a discipline write-up or a shot. And they'd never seen someone that had done that. And it is fairly amazing that you could do 19 years and never have a write-up. The closest Larry ever came to getting a write-up, also known as a shot, occurred when he was transferring from one prison to another. He was going through the standard medical procedures that all incoming prisoners go through. The problem was that Larry had two appointments scheduled for the same time, so he missed one of them. It was a dental appointment. And they said, well, tell us about this. And I said, I have to tell you, I always felt or dreamed about that when I'm explaining my prison life to my grandchildren, I'm going to tell them my first shot was for this horrendous fight. The other guy had a shank and I had to ward it off and on and on and on. And how the fuck am I going to tell him it was for missing a dental appointment? I'm a dentist. I hate people that miss dental appointments. And this guy was laughing. He says, well, it can't be possible that you have no shots. No one I've ever seen has no shots. He looks and says, you're right. You don't have anyone. And we're not going to start with this. So that's as close as I ever came to getting a shot. Despite his sterling record, Larry was denied parole. His prison sentence was complicated. There were multiple sentences for multiple charges, each with their own stipulations. And you had to weigh a sentence against the time he was shaving off with good behavior. One big thing that Larry had going for him, and that every federal convict has going for them, is that the most you can serve is two-thirds of your sentence. In Larry's case, that was about 28 years. Larry had found ways to chip away at that sentence. He worked in the factory. There was an optional drug abuse program. Larry not only entered the program, he taught it. He even tutored for college courses. Slowly but surely, he shaved the sentence down and was granted parole. Larry's release was set for the first week of May in 2005. He was 52 years old and had spent 40% of his life behind bars. On the day of his release, the assistant warden wished Larry good luck and opened the gates. It's very strange when you're being released after you've been involved with so many people in one of these places. Typically, they throw a big party. You know, they cook nachos. And, you know, we're talking 30, 40 people that are involved in the dorm you might live in, kind of saying their goodbyes. It's almost like I know these people better than I know anyone on the street now at this point. But it's time to uh, end those relationships, at least temporarily, and, and move on. So I go out, and I'm going to be catching a bus. I remember we stopped at a McDonald's. And I buy a sandwich, but I'm just shocked by the price. I mean, it's like three eighty-five or something for a Big Mac. This woman's asked me how I think these sunglasses look on her. And then all of a sudden she's talking like it doesn't make sense. I thought maybe she's got some mental issues. Well, now I realize she's talking on a Bluetooth. I never seen a Bluetooth up to that point. You know? So that was kind of interesting. So then I'm allowed somehow to go to Walmart and 
someone I befriend who's still one of my best friends here, Scott, takes me in there and he shows me these auto checkouts. I said, this can't work. Don't people just steal from this all day long? I just couldn't believe you could do that. Larry Lavin settled down in Tampa, Florida. He was introduced to a woman through work and they ultimately got married. He got a job at a telemarketing company, One Touch. His position, sales. He took his time before returning to Philadelphia. But about 10 years after being released from prison, Larry visited the city of brotherly love to pay his respects to an old friend. I just had the pleasure of having him at my daughter's wedding five years ago, and it was all walks of life people there. He could mingle with anybody. How do I say this to you? When you go to prison, it's dark, man. It's dark, right? Somehow through all that, Larry kept that fucking laughing and personality. He's not a street guy. He came out of prison normal. People don't do that. They're shot. They're fucking bouchard. Bouchard in Italian means burnt toast. They're bouch- He's bouchard. He wasn't. He just remained like level. Like, how do you do that, right? Hell of a human being. Who could do what he did? Tell me. You know, there'll be some people that will say, ah, who the fuck was he? He was a junk dealer. <laughs> he was more than a junk dealer. You can't go to Wharton, dude. You can't fucking be a dentist from nothing. It's a kid from Boston. But personality as big as his room. Not a bragger. No diamond rings, right? He didn't carry like that. He didn't, he didn't roll like that. You know what he is. Well, I would say to Larry, accept responsibility for what you did. You paid your time and you paid your time to society by serving time in prison. It's time now to accept what you did for what it did and move on with your life but don't make excuses for it. Don't glorify it and help others understand the devastation that drugs have on people's lives. You know, it'd be really easy to say that I've looked at this morally and what it's done and this and that, and I've changed my mind. Unfortunately, I think I have a little larceny in my soul. If I could do it all over again, would I do anything differently? My answer is I won't get caught. I'm Steve Seidel, and thank you for listening to Wolves Among Us, Season 1, The Larry Lavin Story. Thank you for listening to Wolves Among Us, a presentation and production of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio, executive produced by Chris Corcoran of Cadence 13. Story created by Cadence 13, along with Matthew Hazara Davis and Steve Seidel. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge of Cadence 13. Co-written by Matthew Hazara Davis, Lloyd Lockridge, and Steve Seidel. Edited, mixed, and mastered by Chris Basil. Narrated by me, Steve Seidel. Produced by Ian Mont and Margot Gray.
marketing, PR, production coordination, sales and operations, and business affairs by Maura Curran, Josefina Francis, Kurt Courtney, Hilary Shook, Lauren Vieira, Lucas Santroen, Bill Schultz, Bob Tabador, Sean Cherry, Lizzie Roberti, Danny Kutrick, and Karen Andrews. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. Sophia Franklin, and if you don't already know, listen up. My mini series is live now each and every Monday, and the only person missing is you. We're dating, we're dumping, we're learning, and we're tapping into all the feels that originally brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.